see tonight. And um, obviously, this is a series on standards, and we went way back to the beginning and talked about what a conviction is, what a standard is, what preferences are, and all of those other things, and we're, we've talked about several things in between, um, but by, definitions, stand, by, by definition, standards in the context of what we're talking about implies something that's external, something that's visible, something that you can see on the outside, and so we've tried to build that case uh, over the last few weeks and really the last couple months, but it makes sense to say that standards uh, inevitably involve what we wear, and the next few weeks, we're going to discuss what the Bible says about our clothing, but I want, to, uh, I want to start tonight by talking about clothing in the Bible. It's, I think this is a pretty interesting study, and really, I'm just kind of setting the table for the next few weeks, but I think it's important that we understand uh, how we see it in the Bible or, or, or what we see in the Bible about those things, and, and uh, I just want to give you some background information about clothing in the Bible. And I, as I was going through this and kind of studying this out, I, I found it very interesting and looking at it from different perspectives and things. But understanding that, I think, is going to help us with the three principles related to clothing that we're going to talk about really over the next three weeks. And so um, just, just by way of introduction here, uh, in the Bible, the word raiment is used 57 times. And when it talks about raiment, it's, it's in context, it's related to silk and linen and wool and flax and animal skins and dye, needlework, sewing, weaving, embroidery, colors, specific garments. So it's used in a lot of different ways. Apparel is another word that we see used in the Bible. It's used 28 times, and it's associated with terms like glorious, rich, strange, white, royal, modest, goodly, right? Glorious apparel, richly apparel, modest apparel, um, uh, goodly apparel, and so on. The word clothes itself is actually found more than 200 times in the Bible. And, you know, uh, uh, I guess if you never did a study on this, you'd never really realize that, it, that it's talked about that much. Um, but it's, it's used in connection with being washed, talking about clothes, being cleansed, being put off, put on, swaddling clothes, soft, long, durable, bright, gay. It's, it's used in a lot of different ways to talk about our clothes. And then even more than that, garment, the word garment is found 186 times. Uh, wear nine times, attire three times. And I've looked at most of those references. And, and again, it's just, it literally is just talking about our clothes. Um, so I, I think it's safe to say that, that with all of those mentions and with all of the different things about it, that it, that it is important. It's something that's important that we have and that we wear and everything else. And so there's four biblical uses for clothing. And tonight I want to look at those uses, uses in some of the passages that I've mentioned and that'll help us, I think, as we move forward in our discussion. So first of all, uh, you're there in Genesis chapter 3, but the first one is the moral use of clothing. And uh, this is interesting. Prior to the fall, obviously, there was no sh uh, shame. There was no sin. There was no clothes. And, and, it, and to them, it was nothing because there was no shame in it, because there was no sin. And uh, so they, they lived in paradise. Obviously, nothing that their hearts desired was denied them. They had everything they wanted in the Garden of Eden. Right. And um, I mean, when you talk about being able to dress and keep the Garden of Eden and I think I think uh, I think uh, the Garden of Eden was very much like it's going to be in the in the in Christ's new kingdom. When the Bible says the lion will lay down with the lamb and a kid will be able to play over a snake's den and all of those kind of things. I think Adam had free reign. The lions were not out to kill him. Right. The uh, the the animals that were bigger than him all got along together. There was none of this. You know, there was no death even amongst the animals. Right. And I don't know how long, the Bible doesn't really give us any kind of clue about how long they lived in the Garden of Eden in that way. It sounds like a very short time, but it might have been for 
a long time that he lived there. I don't, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But uh, in the cool of the day, God himself, the one who created them, the one who inhabits eternity, as the Bible says, came down to walk with them every single day in the cool of the day. But one evening, God came down to seek that fellowship with Adam and Eve, and they were nowhere to be found. And uh, God called to Adam, and finally Adam stepped out of the shadows of the woods where he had hidden himself. And I think it was probably pretty obvious, uh, you know, he didn't have to say anything because his pitiful withered fig leaves that he was wearing that were sewed together with twigs uh, made it pretty obvious that they'd eaten from the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit that God had told them to stay away from. And after the fall, it became shameful then to display the body, and it was necessary after that to cover it appropriately. And that's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 7. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now we see, uh, you know, verse, verse number 9, he says, Adam, where art thou? Verse 11, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now God knew the answer to those questions, and he had known from ages past that his, his creatures were going to make that choice. And he also knew, and he had already covenanted with Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross and, and, and you know, be the means for their redemption. But, his, but even his foreknowledge must not have lessened the sting of actually seeing Adam and Eve go and sin, seeing them hiding themselves because they, their eyes are now opened and they do realize that they're naked, the sting of having to confront them about the sin that they had not had up to this point. But the word aprons there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 7 in the original language implies the equivalent of a loincloth. And uh, that was not sufficient in God's view. So God himself furnished them with something that was going to be much more of a covering. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. God slaughtered innocent animals. Animals that up to that point had done nothing to humans. Animals that up to that point very possibly might even have been able to talk. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, it's very possible that that's the way that it was in the garden. You know, Adam named all of them. He, he probably was able to call them by name and have them come to him and everything else. I, I don't know exactly how it was, but God had to slaughter these innocent animals and he took their skins, he cleaned them, and he made them into covering garments for his children. That word coat, Adam, unto Adam also and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin. That word coat is, is basically the same thing as a robe, something that implies that God wanted more skin to be covered. Who knew that God was the first legalist, right? Uh, but that's exactly what you see in this passage. God made them something that was going to be a whole lot more of a covering than just these little loincloths and, and these... Uh, fig leaves, these aprons that they had sold, sewed themselves. But I think it's important to point out here that God was concerned about their clothes. Uh, and I think it's reasonable to assume that's God, that God's concerned about our clothes as well. Now, let me add a couple points here. Number one, Adam and Eve's clothes betrayed their spiritual condition. Um, when they were innocent of sin, they had no clothing and they were not even aware of it. There was no shame in it. Um, the fig leaves prompted God's question who told you that you were naked? How did you figure that out? How did you know that? Their clothing revealed that they were sinners, right? The fact that they realized that they were not wearing any clothing and they had to go cover themselves up because of that shame, that sin obviously brought that on. But then God clothed them in those durable garments, which I think is a picture of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You think about it. 
God came and asked Adam those questions. Did you eat of that tree? And Adam could have continued to deny it, right? No, I, I didn't. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it would have been foolish for him to do that, the same way it's foolish for us when God comes and points his finger at our sin and we continue to deny it, right? Same way that he does it with, with people who are unsaved and he comes and he convicts them of their sin and they can't admit that they're sinners or whatever it is that, that's hanging them up when they're hearing the message of the gospel being preached to them or given to them or whatever else, right? Uh, they could continue to deny it. Adam and Eve could have continued to deny it, but they admitted, yes, we took that. You know? Of course, Adam tried to blame Eve. Eve tried to blame the serpent, but it, they, admitted, they admitted that they had sinned. And so it seems that our clothing reveals something of our spiritual condition as well. Their clothing signified that they were forgiven, they were covered sinners, and it does the same thing for us. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 23, because I think the second thing is we can, we can infer from what we read in the Bible here from the scriptures that after the fall, Adam and Eve became aware of their innate maleness and femaleness. If those are words, I don't know, but uh, Genesis chapter 22, uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 23, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and he says in verse 24, and they shall be one flesh, right? Now, in the, in the perfect creation, Adam and Eve seem to have been conscious of their oneness, right? They knew that they were one flesh, but they didn't, they didn't see their differences. Uh, not until after the fall do we find Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 7. Their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked, and they went and covered themselves up. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Adam and Eve were the only two, as far as we know, at that point, Adam and Eve were the only two that were on the earth, Right? Why did they need to go cover themselves up? It's just because of the innate differences between male and female. God has built into the human consciousness and that innate awareness of the distinction between men and women. And that affects the commands that he gives concerning clothing, which we'll talk about uh, later on. But that's, a, that's an important point there to notice that there is a distinction between male and female. We mentioned it this morning in the teen class, right? Uh, the teens that were in there will remember we talked about this for just a little bit of time. Male and female created he them. They didn't create all the 48 or whatever different genders they're on now, and they're adding more to them every single day. He didn't create all those different genders. He didn't, he didn't make a mistake when he created somebody, and, oh, you know, oh, he created them male, but they should have been a female, or vice versa. Well, God didn't make a mistake in those things. He created male, and he created female, and nothing in between. And their sin revealed the innate differences between those two things, male and female. Number three, then, in God's perfect creation, Adam and Eve felt no need to cover their bodies, but... In the ruined chaos of the world after the fall, they knew instinctively that they, they must be covered. And, and again, we've mentioned this already, but before sin entered into the world, there was not that temptation. So, so no sin in viewing the unclothed body. But when sin came, those beautiful bodies that were created in honor and glory in the image of God were subjected to dishonor and weakness. And we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 43. I'm not going to turn over there. You can write it down and go back and look at it later if you want to. But that act of love that was designed by God to be holy and to be sublime now was mimicked by lustful, unholy desires that Satan would use to tempt people to sin. And because we're sinners and because we're subject to the temptation of sinners, we need to clothe our bodies. And it's very important then that we do that as male and female. And again, I'm, I'm setting the stage and I'm talking about what we see in the Bible when it, as it relates to clothing because we're going to apply that uh, when we get into some of these things in the next couple of weeks. But that's the moral use of clothing. And, and boy, what an important part that is. Uh, we should be covered. We should be clothed because of the innate sinfulness and because of the sin that was passed down from Adam to us. And of course, we're sinners as well. 
But then the second uh, way that we see that in the Bible is the practical use of clothing. And uh, you can turn over to Exodus chapter 28. We're going to get there in a minute. But prior to the fall, as I see it in the Bible, weather was a non-factor. There was no issue with the weather, right? There was not heat and cold and all of these other things. And, but after the fall, uh, with everything else that changed, that did too. I think sunburn became an issue. Cold became an issue. Um, in addition to weather, there's specific tasks that required clothing. Esau, we see, he was a mighty hunter. He had clothes that were set aside for hunting that, that Jacob stole, obviously. War, of course, produced the need for that hardened leather that they used as armor. And then eventually they got to the point where they were using, you know, uh, 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 all the other different things, the suit of armor that they used. But in Bible times, people wore three basic items of clothing. And I think this is pretty interesting. The first was the tunic. It was like a long, um, a long undershirt or, or a long dress that they would wear under their clothes. And generally, it had sleeves. It reached all the way down to the ankles. But you can see examples of that in the way that um, conservative Muslims dress today. Uh, I think conservative Muslims dressed the same way that a lot of people did back in the Bible times, but men and women both wore the same thing. Men wore their tunics slightly shorter than women, which again was a distinction between the two genders, uh, but that was, that was one of the first things that, that, one of the things that they wore. So they would wear a tunic, but then in addition to a tunic, there was a girdle or a belt that they would wear, and that was wrapped around the tunic at the waist. It was often made of leather, sometimes made out of coarse cloth, uh, but a lot of times the women would, would stud their girdles with, you know, um, precious stones. And then again, as a distinction, women often would wear their uh, girdle slightly lower and a little bit more loose than the men did. And then the third one was a cloak. And that was the equivalent of a, of a long robe that was worn over the top of the tunic. And that robe was, it was worn mainly for warmth. And at night, people would remove the girdle and the cloak and they would sleep in their tunics. But men doing this you know, physical labor or men uh, involved in war um, a lot of times would remove that outer garment. They would take that cloak off because it would just get in the way. And, and they would tie up their tunic and wrap it a, a, a little bit higher toward their waist with that girdle or that sash. And we see, that, we, we see a lot of references to that in the Bible. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 29, then he said to Gehazi, gird up thy loins. That's what it means. It's, you know, these, and, and again, it was not immodest for a man to, to, to do that. It was necessary for a man to do that. So he'd raise that tunic up, tie it a little bit tighter, make it so that he had room to move around and do what he needed to do for war or work or whatever else. Job chapter 40, verse 7, gird up thy loins now like a man. And that, that produced something roughly equivalent to a divided garment like a pair of pants. Now, I think it's actually interesting in Exodus chapter 28, pants were directly required of the priests. Look at Exodus chapter 28 and verse number 42. And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness. From the loins, even unto the thighs, they shall reach. And they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they come into the, under the tabernacle of the congregation, or when they come near unto the altar to minister in the holy place, that they bear not iniquity and die. It shall be a statue forever unto him and his seed after him. So they were re required to wear uh, pants as priests. But that's, a, that's a, and again, it's, it's a practical use of clothing, but I think it's also interesting to notice that even in the practical uses, there were distinctions between male and female. Third one then, and you can turn over to Revelation 21, the third use of clothing in the, in the Bible is the aesthetic use of clothing, uh, what you look like, right? Simply from time to time, 
You'll find groups in Christianity that say that dressing to be beautiful is wrong. That's one of the that's one of the issues that the Amish have, right? They always wear black or dark blue, and that's it. That's all you're allowed to wear because you can't look beautiful, otherwise you're being vain, right? Even uh, even a lot of the Mennonites uh, will hold to that thing, and and they have certain you know they're not they don't wear all black and blue, um, but they will wear you know certain, just very plain clothing. A lot of a lot of places, um, a lot of religions, if you will, or denominations, maybe no makeup for the ladies, no earrings, no necklaces, no rings, none of those kind of things, because. You, if you're trying to make yourself beautiful, then you are vain and, and God doesn't want you to be vain and whatever else. And again, there's, there's you know, uh, but they say that to be pleasing to the eye is wrong. And in essence, what they're saying is that clothing was designed to be functional and neat and clean, but it shouldn't be decorated any, any other way. And I think that position is unscriptural, not just that it's not, you know, that, that oh, I don't agree with that. I, I don't think it's scriptural to be able to say that. Uh, for two reasons. Number one, clothing, using clothing as a means of decoration or, or beautifying yourself is not condemned anywhere in the Bible. Uh, now, there, there's, there's warnings against overdoing it, but nowhere in the Bible is it condemned to not try to be beautiful, right? Uh, and then also, in some places, it's strongly implied in good context, and we see that there in Revelation 21 and verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city near Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, right? I mean, what's, what is adorning for her husband? It's a, a bride is, is a very public thing on the day of her wedding, right? And for her to beautify herself and dress up and do all those things to try to look as beautiful as she can for her husband on the day of her wedding, that's encouraged. I mean, and not only that, but that's what we as a church are going to look like to Jesus Christ as, we're, as he's coming to get his bride. But God designed his creation as functional, yes, but he also adorned it very luxuriously. I mean, uh, God loves beauty. I mean, think about, think about every summer sunset, right? And, and where we live out there, most of you have been out to our house, beautiful, beautiful sunsets that we have. And, and God does that. He paints it that way. Think about the fall in Virginia. We had a, we had a, we had a great uh, fall this year with the colors and all of that. And we, you know, we went out to the mountains, and boy, it's just beautiful out there. Uh, but, but even the, I mean, just think about the, the birds in the rainforest in, in Brazil and just all the other things that God does. God loves beauty and God is creative and he's artistic and he loves to decorate. It's impossible to, to say otherwise when you just look around at creation, but he made us like him. We delight in beauty. We delight in color in decoration. There's nothing intrinsically or automatically wrong with that. Why does the human heart desire and long for beauty? Because it longs for God. David prayed this in Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let me give you a few other scriptural examples. I think these are really, really interesting. Turn over to Proverbs 31. And, and some of them I'm going to cover very quickly just because uh, for, for the sake of time. But God spent a great deal of time giving Moses very explicit instructions for making the priest's garments in Exodus chapter 28. He directed the colors and the fabrics and the design and the pattern and the embroidery and all of those other things. They were beautiful. They were beautiful garments, right? Why? He says in verse 40 of Exodus chapter 28, for glory and beauty. So why would God tell them to design a garment for glory and beauty if they were not supposed to look beautiful? Now, that's obviously men. Uh, and it's, but it's a beautiful garment that, that he designed. 
The, the, uh, I think another example of that is the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, right? She spent her time not just in clothing her children, but in making their clothing pretty. Proverbs 31, verse 21. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. So here she is decorating these clothes and making them look beautiful, right? What didn't say that they're all black or all blue, right? Um, it, but the Bible often mentions the bride adorned for her husband. We see it in Isaiah 49, Isaiah 61, Jeremiah 2, Revelation 21. For sake of time, we're not going to look at those, but a bride adorned for her husband. That's, that's beautifying, right? It's being beautiful. Now, one of the most poignant parables in, the, in all of the Bible, I think, is found in Ezekiel chapter 16. So turn over there. I think poor Ezekiel had one of the toughest jobs out of any of the prophets. Uh, boy, some of the stuff that Ezekiel had to go through as a way of making a point to the Israelites, that guy suffered, <laughs> and he was humiliated over and over and over and over again. But walking through a field, this man finds a, a newborn baby girl that was abandoned by her mother, and I'm, 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 I'm summarizing this so that we don't have to take the time to read it all, but... The, 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 the baby was unwashed. It was bloody. Nobody had pity on her. This child would have died were it not for this stranger walking through this field and having found this baby girl. And so he picked her up. He brought her to his house. He whispered to her over and over. And it's, it's interesting when you read that passage. He's whispering in her ear, live, live, just live, live. And she does. He cleaned her up. He loved her like his own. And the years went by, God says, and she grew into this lovely young woman. And... Uh, Ezekiel said, thy time was the time of love. So he covenanted himself to be her husband. And Ezekiel 16 tells us what he did for the girl that he was about to marry in verse number 10. I clothed thee also with broidered work and shod thee with badger skins and I girded thee about with fine linen and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments and I put bracelets upon thy hands and a chain on thy neck and I put a jewel on thy forehead and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thou, thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord. Now, obviously, this is a, this is a picture that God's trying to paint for Israel, but Look what he did for this lady, right, for this, for this girl that was going to be his wife. I mean, he made her beautiful, as beautiful as he possibly could. And every beautiful ornament that could be imagined was prepared by the man that was getting his bride ready for her wedding. And since that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ making us ready for our heavenly home, which is exactly what that is, it's safe to say that God himself takes pleasure in a woman adorning herself for her husband. Nothing wrong with a woman who wants to make herself beautiful. Now, don't misunderstand. There are many passages that do talk about over-adorning, if you will, uh, too much care for the externals, too much care about your appearance, too much care about the outside, uh, and, and the adornment of the body can lead to sin. But from the examples that were given there in Scripture, there's nothing wrong with beauty. I think it's safe to say that God wants you to be beautiful. And, uh, you know, anymore you see w women... Um, but, but especially um, young women and young men that are, you know, the, the trend of, the day, uh, of today is to be as sloppy as you can possibly be, right? Hair that's, that's the most matted that it can be and, and all over the place and floppy and doing all this kind of stuff. And, you know, just, I mean, look, look, 
the clothes that people wear today, we would not even have gone to Goodwill and tried to find, right? I mean, holes all over and everything and ripped and torn and shredded. I mean, and, and that's, you know, you're paying 10 times more for, than, than you would for a regular pair of jeans for something that can make you look as sloppy as you can possibly look. And that's fashion, right? I mean, that's not, that's not beautiful, that's, that's sloppy. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not, I don't think that's pleasing to God. But anyway, there, the whole idea that many times there are, there are Christian groups out there that say that you can't wear makeup and you can't be beautiful and you can't, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to look frumpy and as ugly as you possibly can. I don't think that we find that in the Bible. I think that, that for a lady to make herself beautiful and to do the best that she can with, with, uh, with beauty and beautifying herself we see that over and over and over and over in the Bible as a good thing and something that's encouraged. The last thing, then, is the religious use of clothing. And you can turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Because in addition to the moral use of clothing, which is very similar in, in, in a lot of ways, connected with sin and shame, the moral use was connected with that. There are, there are other examples of God commanding certain kind of clothing for religious reasons. For example... Um, we, we have the, you know, the elaborately detailed instructions given in the Torah for the priest's wardrobe, and we kind of looked a little bit at that already, but these, these clothes were gold threads and white linen and wool in three different colors, and every item and color was a physical representation of some kind of spiritual truth. And so when we talk about a religious use of the clothing, there were also occasions where God instructed men to, to signify grief, to signify repentance, to signify humility by the clothes that they wore. 2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 31, And David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, Rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And passages like that are found all the way throughout the Bible. How many times do you see a passage that says, you know, they were clothed in sackcloth and ashes. It was, it was the use of the clothing to signify some certain thing. Many times it was humility, but also mourning and a lot of different things in that way. Turn over to Mark chapter 9. Because on earth, the greatest example of this is undoubtedly the transfiguration. Um, Mark chapter 9 and verse number 3, and again, you know the story of the transfiguration. I'm not going to go through the whole story. It's not necessarily the story that's important. It's this verse here in Mark chapter 9 and verse 3 that we see. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Could not make it any whiter any, any wider, you could not make it possibly any more wider than it already was there. And I mean, could you imagine the brilliance of that? I, I love, to, you know, to see bright white. And, and you see, I mean, and this is a, maybe a dumb illustration, but even like paper that I use and things like that. I, when I go to the store to buy paper, I want the brightest white paper I can get, you know. And you don't, you don't even realize how dull, you know, dull white some paper is until you put it up next to some really bright white. Right? But that's exactly what here. These shining white garments re represented the entire righteousness, first God and then ours. Right? Our righteousness, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. But when they're covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, John says this about the church. In fact, turn over to Revelation 19. We're done. But I want you to see this last verse because I think this is very significant, it's especially in relation to that. But Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 8. It says, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And I think we see that represented there at the transfiguration. This bright white, the raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can, make, can white them. 
And I think that represented the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but it represents our righteousness when it's covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, if you will. And we see it in Revelation 19, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So uh, interesting study, interesting study, but I'm using that as a way to set the table for what we're going to talk about and build off uh, of this in the next few weeks. And there's four basic uses of clothing, but there's several Bible principles, there's that word again, um, that apply to what, how, and why we wear what we wear. And those principles are vanity, identity, and modesty. And that's the three things that we're going to start talking about when we get into that next week, all right? But I, I think a very interesting, uh, very interesting study to see how this is used in the Bible. And of course, why? Why in the very beginning we had to use, why in the very beginning Adam and Eve started wearing clothes in the first place, right? And it was, a, uh, it was, it was because of their sin, and that's why it's necessary that we do the same thing, because nothing has changed since then. Um, other than that Jesus Christ has covered our sin if we accept him as our Savior, but uh, the, the, the fact is still there that we are sinners. And we're going to talk about that next week, vanity, identity, modesty. We'll take one for each week, and I think it'll be helpful to us. All right, let's pray, and then uh, we'll sing our song, and we'll be done for tonight. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness to us. and thank you for the word of God. I pray that you'd help us to hold it precious. I pray that you'd help us to never take it for granted, the fact that we can pick up your word, that we can open it up, that we can read it. And God, the way that we show that we are not taking it for granted is to do what it says, to follow what it says. And I pray that you'd help us as we try to discern the things in the word of God and rightly divide the word of truth, that we would uh, do it in a way that's pleasing to you and that everything you want us to do, we do. Everything you want us not to do, we wouldn't do. And we'd be as close to the word of God as we possibly can be. Well, thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. We'll close in the course. This could be the day that the Lord returns in glory. This could be the day that he calls his children home. So be faithful in service. As you watch and pray for this, oh this, this could be the day.